we have known since 1994 that being a woman is the second most impactful risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease after getting older. But everybody associates Alzheimer's disease with old age. Nobody talks about the fact that still today, almost two thirds of all Alzheimer's cases are women. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Well, we might have some fleeting concern for our brain health when we're postpartum or in perimenopause, like when we wonder where we left the car keys one too many times. Hint, check the freezer in menopause and the diaper bag or car seat if you have a baby. Brain health, in fact, isn't something most of us spend much time thinking about unless we're faced with the loved one with dementia, a wrenching condition for a person to experience and also for their family to watch and go through. Yet Alzheimer's disease affects twice as many women as men, even adjusting for our longer lifespans. Researchers estimate that nearly two-thirds of those living with Alzheimer's in the United States are women, and menopause possibly increases our vulnerability to it. Still, medical research has continued to marginalize research into women's brain health. I'm your host, Dr. Aviva Ram, and it's a pleasure to welcome my guest for today, Dr. Lisa Moscone. Dr. Moscone is blowing the lid off of female brain health with her groundbreaking research, showing us that and how menopause reshapes the landscape of the female brain and hints, at least, that this reshaping includes compensatory adaptations that maintain brain function in spite of the menopause-related drop in estrogen levels. Dr. Moscone holds a PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine and is an associate professor of neuroscience in neurology and radiology at Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital, where she serves as director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Weill Cornell Medicine, which includes the Women's Brain Initiative, Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, and Alzheimer's Prevention Clinical Trials Unit. She's the author of the New York Times, USA Today, Publishers Weekly, and Der Spiegel bestselling The XX Brain 2020, and of the international bestseller Brain Food 2018. She's ranked among the top 1% of scientists of the past 20 years by official metrics and was listed as one of the 17 most influential living female scientists by the Times. Dr. Moscone was called the Mona Lisa of neuroscience by L International. Her TED Talk, How Menopause Affects the Brain, has been viewed over 2 million times in the first three months since its release. You can find her at her website, www.lisamoscone.com, and on Instagram at dr.moscone. Lisa and I met in late 2021 at a private women's dinner where she presented her latest research findings, and I've since read The XX Brain. 
As I read it, I realized we're sisters from another mother. It's hormone intelligence for the brain. In fact, the books are a perfect companion for brain and hormone health. Her work is cutting through the historical research black hole on women's health and using her own personal passion and commitment to provide us with answers to questions that need to be, but haven't been asked often or loudly enough until now, while showing us how we can both prevent brain decline, not with more and more medical intervention, but by nourishing our brain using an integrative approach to health. In her work, she reminds us that less than 1% of Alzheimer's cases are the result of genetic mutations and that DNA won't impact a woman's likelihood of developing dementia nearly as much as her hormonal status, lifestyle, and overall health. But this information is widely unknown, even amongst medical practitioners. Lisa is warm, witty, and an absolutely brilliant force of nature, holding it all down in the research world while also being a mom. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. I know you'll fall in love with her as we discuss all the things to help you have a healthy brain span over the course of a healthy lifespan, staying sharp, brilliant, and totally you throughout your life, which may include as many as 40 or 50 years of lived experience as a menopausal woman. Lisa, welcome and thank you for making time for this conversation in what I know is an incredibly busy schedule. You're in yeah. demand. You're a mama and a writer <laughs> and a researcher and a speaker and a program director. So it's incredible that you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to see you. Actually, we get to talk a little bit. You know, it's such a pleasure and it's nice doing it face to face instead of just by email and text. Yes. So I want to just jump right in and I find that people's personal journey so often reveals the why behind what they do. And I know from hearing you speak before, your personal story and family history is directly relevant to you becoming a neuroscientist, specifically with a focus on female brain health and dementia. And I'm wondering if you can just take us on a journey into your personal why. Sure. <laughs> My personal why started at a very young age because my parents are both nuclear physicists, both of them. I really grew up in a scientific environment. I, re I remember having these conversations over dinner about p-values and standard deviations and how something was just not reliable because it didn't check all the boxes. And <laughs> it was really second nature for me to think about the world the way the scientists do. And I was always really fascinated with human psychology, mostly because I didn't quite get what other people were doing, what they were thinking. Because, you know, growing up with scientists may do that to you. Like you, you are a different child than your friends and your classmates, you have different questions. You don't really know TV shows, but you know what gravity is. And I was fascinated with chemistry as well. And I told my grandmother when I was in middle school that I was going to be a psychiatrist. And that was a disaster. Nobody wanted me to be a psychiatrist. She didn't want me to be a psychiatrist. And, uh, but then I went to study neuroscience, which I loved. I loved, I never liked going to school until college. Oh, then wow. you couldn't stop me. You just could not stop me. It was just like books, 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 books. And around the same time, my grandmother started showing signs of cognitive deterioration. 
And within a few years, she developed Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, the most common cause of dementia really on the planet. And then her two younger sisters also developed dementia and all three of them died of it very Mm -hmm. late in life. So we really, we really had many, many years to fully be impacted by that. And for context, their brother did not. So there were four siblings, Mm -hmm. three sisters and one brother, and all three sisters developed dementia, whereas the brother did not, Mm -hmm. which was clearly, you know, as as a young scientist to do, make the connection and say, well, is it worse for women? Does it happen more to women? Is there a connection? And back then, people knew that already. We have known since 1994 that being a woman is, the second most impactful risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease after getting older. But everybody associates Alzheimer's disease with old age. Nobody talks about the fact that still today, almost two thirds of all Alzheimer's cases are women. You know, I studied neuroscience, of course, not to the extent that you have, but as a physician, (laughs) we spend, you know, we spend a lot of time on neuroscience and medical training. We spend a lot of time learning about Alzheimer's. I rotated through our um, geriatrics and Alzheimer's clinics and to experience the devastation of watching families and individuals who are recognizing they're developing Alzheimer's um, go through it is, as you know, so incredibly devastating. Yes. All the years of training I had, it wasn't until I actually read your materials that I realized the actual statistics on how many women compared to men are are impacted. It's really dramatic. It is dramatic. And I I find it so bizarre that it's not common knowledge. Mm -mm. I didn't know that. I, you know, I studied neuroscience. I studied neuroscience. I started when I was 18. So it's like over 20 years of doing that. Yeah. That was never, no, you know, it was just not a knowledge. So I started asking questions. Of course, I said, well, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. If it does, why? And the answer was really, it's age-related. So Alzheimer's disease is a disease of old age, and women live longer than men. So in the end, there's more women with Alzheimer's than men with Alzheimer's disease. And that, in principle, makes sense, but it's not really the only explanation, because if you think about it, women don't live that much longer than men, right? So in the United States, the average difference is about four years, not 20, not 10, so four, not even four, it's more like three and a half, I think, at this point. In England, the difference is two years, and still Alzheimer's disease is the number one cause of death for women and not men in the UK. So there's something more to this that, that there was, it was, I always find it to be slightly unconvincing as an explanation, it's just a bit too dismissive. You use a term yeah. that I think is so interesting 
it's called bikini medicine. There you go. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think it's interesting. Part of why I find the term, it's so visual. Obviously, I can't not see a woman in a bikini when I see that term bikini medicine, which almost reveals what the term partly means. But you use the term very specifically to describe the way medicine is practiced and how it has actually stymied research on yes. women's health and brain health. Can you talk about that and why it's been a problem? Yes. So bikini medicine is really the reason that we, it's one of the many reasons that we don't understand women's brains because bikini medicine, at least in my mind, is really saying that from a medical perspective, what makes a woman a woman are those body parts that we cover under a bikini and nothing more. So it's her breasts, it's her ovaries, her tubes, all the organs that end up being the focus of women's health. Mm -hmm. So the field of women's health is really all about of reproductive organs. And so if, if an organ of your body does not fit under a bikini, then the assumption is that there's no difference mm -hmm. between that woman's organ and the man's organ. And their brain will never fit under a bikini, not even the most conservative one. <laughs> right. right. And, and women's brains have not been studied and we, we really don't understand, or, or better, they've been studied assuming that they would be exactly the same as men. Bikini medicine is saying that men and women are essentially the same person with different reproductive organs. Right. And your book and research really, well, your your studies have found, and you talk about this in the XX Brain, that there is a really significant difference in the actual composition of women's brains. And that makes us hardwired neurologically also to function differently. And I wanted to say there's going to be quite a few things that we talk about today that may sound controversial and right genderized yeah. and also that may sound like they're leading into stereotypes and i want to be really careful no. to say not only are we not saying that no. but we're really shedding a light on why these differences are so important and empowering yeah and also i think it's really important to just preempt the kind of questions <laughs> by by clarifying that gender is not the same as sex we tend to use the same terms or to use the terms interchangeably. And when we say feminine and masculine, we, we, we use those terms also for biology. And I find that to be very misleading. Also, English is my third language. <laughs> so I started questioning these words because I was like, it doesn't quite capture what I say. Like if I, if I talk about the female brain, I mean, the brain of a woman, so somebody who's born with an XX. Mm -hmm. When, I, when we say female brains, women's brains, we, we mean the brains of women who were born with two X chromosomes. Well, and it is a really important conversation and a different one than we'll have today, but we'll just say the XX brain, the XX brain. which is the yeah. perfect name. It's your book. It's so book. in the XX brain, you yeah. talk about a difference between the male and female brain and the difference in composition that makes us hardwired neurologically to function somewhat differently. And I'm wondering if you can explain these differences along with the biological advantages that this may provide and why knowing it is so important. Yes, I think it is really important. And there's um, just this tendency in my field in neuroscience to think that sex doesn't matter. But in truth, every cell in the body has sex because every cell has the same chromosome that doesn't just dictate reproductive features and characteristics, but also really triggers specific cells to act and behave a certain way. So 
when you are born with two X chromosomes, that means that every cell inside your brain has two X chromosomes. And that means that the hormones that these chromosomes are producing are really geared towards estrogen production, the production of so-called female hormones like estradiol, estrum, progesterone. And your brain becomes wired to respond preferentially to those hormones because it's not just the hormones, it's also the structures that the hormones need to bind to, to really function, which are called receptors. So if you look at women's brains, we have a lot of estrogen receptors. They're really spread out throughout the brain. And when estrogen latches onto the receptors, that's when a lot of wonderful things happen because estrogen is the master regulator of the female brain. It's really like the orchestra conductor in the female brain and is in charge of regulating a variety of different functions from energy production is a huge one. So when your estradiol is special, so estrogen is, is the umbrella term for three different hormones. Estradiol, which is the most potent one, and we have it for the entire time, we're fertile. Estron, which is also present, but is, is in very small amounts and becomes the most abundant, so to speak, form of estrogen after menopause. And then there's another one that we make during pregnancy, preferentially. So estradiol is really what the brain wants during a reproductive years. And we have a lot of receptors for estradiol and estradiol supports energy production. So the more estradiol you have in your body and brain, the more energy you have. At the same time, estradiol supports immune function. So it keeps you healthy and promotes the growth of neurons inside your brain. It's a very neuroplastic, neuroprotective hormone. The same happens in men's brains for testosterone. You know, they, they serve very, very similar functions. But what the research has shown is that these hormones don't age the same way. So the quantity is a little bit different. Women, women also make some testosterone, but just proportionally, we have more estradiol when you do a ratio to testosterone, right? And it's the opposite for men. But what happens is that these hormones differ in their longevity. So testosterone levels decline very slowly with age, whereas women's bodies experience fluctuations in hormone levels in multiple times in our lives, even just throughout the menstrual cycle. These hormones really have highs and lows and with puberty is an explosion, with pregnancy is another explosion. And then with menopause, we lose the superpowers of estrogen, of estradiol. And we've shown that menopause is a huge turning point for women's brains in a number of ways, the same way that puberty and pregnancy are, just that menopause has not been studied. So your research has found, and I, I just want to add one sentence of clarification. And you know, I've heard you say this, is that whatever changes that we're talking about as we are about to talk about them, this does not reflect any level of change in intelligence, competence, no. capacity, capability, no. any of that. It's just not physiological changes. And we're going to talk about what happens, why, and what it means. First, I want to just understand what you found. So my understanding is that you found that along with the drop in estrogen levels that occur with menopause come declines in gray matter, which is the cellular matter in the brain, and especially in key regions that may affect Alzheimer's. You've yeah. also found on imaging studies, which is a big part of your research work is MRIs, 
that changes occur in white matter, which are the bundles of nerve fibers that connect the neurons. You found changes in cerebral blood flow and the consumption of glucose, which is the primary source of fuel for our cells. So we know, and we agree between the two of us that menopause is a natural (laughs) physiologic stage in our lives. So why are these things happening? And what's important to understand? When do we get concerned about these changes? I think what's really important to mention is that medicine has always portrayed menopause as a catastrophe. So the vast majority of work on menopause with imaging or without imaging has always been kind of held bent on, on showing what's, what all the different issues are. Everything's deficient. Once we hit menopause, we're dried up and we're deficient. We're deficient in estrogen, but we are deficient. Yeah, I hate the word deficiency. I don't like it either because it's not true. Well, so to me, deficiency implies that somebody's doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a vitamin deficiency, you haven't eaten enough fruits and veggies, right? And so you're creating a problem for yourself. Like there's, there's a lack of something that could be avoided. But with menopause, the fact that our estradiol levels and progesterone levels decrease and other hormones increase, like LH, FSH, right? Those increase estrogen uh, production increases. That is actually by design, right? You, you can't be having kids or children for, the, for your entire life. It's just, it's just not sustainable. So I think it just makes sense that at some point women would just stop um, being in a reproductive phase. And there's a lot of research on the evolutionary significance yeah. of menopause, because something that is also not clear that I think is really a plus for women, and we should be aware and embrace it, is that very few animal species actually survive. I think it's only two, or, right? It's us and whales. You know, there's a few. So there's <laughs> a few three different kinds of whales, all killer whales, which mm. I love just thinking about it. There's a bug, the Japanese aphid. There are some Indian elephants in the type of giraffe. Interesting. The giraffe I just learned about. I really love that. I love that too. Not even monkeys live that much longer. There's some really interesting work around the grandmother hypothesis and right of what that role is past menopause when we contend the children and help the daughters tend the children in a traditional culture and um, where we're also not competing for reproductive resources. Yes. I think that makes a lot of sense to me, Mm -hmm. right? That, so the idea is that at some point in the course of evolution, women, nature basically selected in favor of women who stopped being fertile, but had longevity genes. So they would just stay around and help their own daughters have more children and help their own grandchildren survive in the wild, mostly, and I think it's really cute, by providing food. And I love this analogy with, with modern day grandmothers or you know, women put in a postmenopausal stage, but always providing for others. And I think that is so true. I and mean, it's not universally true, but there is this, this instinct of just taking care of others. I'm so curious to your thoughts about this. Some of the work I've read around menopause is that, and some of this is from your work too, that we have changes in identity, empathy, and social awareness in menopause. And I hear so many menopausal, and I'm menopausal now too, where we get to a point where we don't 
have as much concern about what other people think of us. And we really do feel that we're in a different role as mentors and leaders in society, and we're not taking care of young children anymore. And I wonder what you think about just the shifts in the brain that are happening on purpose um, via nature's beautiful selection that prepare us for these different phases. Well, so I'm glad you asked. I'm writing about it just now. Ah. So I'm working on a new book that is really about how the the brain, how the brain changes um, for women throughout the lifespan with a focus on menopause. But the the point is to put menopause in context. And we're also working on some actual, you know, scientific publications on this topic as well, because I think it's so important to put a research in context to really understand a brain imaging studies in a way that is not the traditional negative view on menopause that society has. Because when I started looking into menopause, I was also looking for things that would help me understand why there's the brain fog, the memory lapse, the heart flashes, the night sweats. What is it that women don't feel so great, to put it mildly, during menopause? And what happens to cognition? Could it be a sign of an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease later on in life? And so we were looking at everything that could potentially go wrong. And then at some point, I got really tired of that. And I said, I want to look at things that actually go right. And for a scientist, that's a very odd (laughs) mindset. You really have to build your experiments or your study cohort in a very different way and ask very different questions. And the statisticians don't quite get what you want to do. So it's complicated, but that's what led to the study you mentioned before, where we looked at a gazillion different parameters. Because if I only look at gray matter, I do see a decline with menopause. There's there's a reduction in gray matter volume during the transition to menopause. If I look at brain energy levels that we do using FDG, positive emission tomography, I also see a very sharp decline. There's literally a 20, 30% drop in brain energy levels during the transition to menopause. But then most women are fine after menopause, right? There's no cognitive impairment. Like you can't, many women do feel like they're not performing as well as they used to, but there's a billion cognitive studies showing, showing really no objective change. Like from a clinical perspective, you're fine. You're still within normal limits. For you, that might be, must be, might be, must be very, very stressful. And maybe you can't come up with words as well as you used to, or it takes you longer to do things or you do have the forgetfulness, but it resolves, right? And so when you first saw these changes, were you like, oh my goodness, this explains it? Yeah, that was scary. Yeah, it is scary. scary. When I first heard you talk about it, I was like, wow, this is frightening. It's unsettling. And also it's in very young women. Like we had this this picture with the brain scans that went a little bit viral that is mm-hmm. now on the internet with the premenopausal brain scan and then the same brain a few years later after menopause and you can see how the brain gets darker and that is the 30% drop in brain energy levels but what I wanted to do was okay let's keep following people over time let's really map it out because menopause is not a non off switch right. it's not like everything is okay and then boom flat bottom level there are different stages so f- first of all you're premenopausal but that could be early and late 
Then you're perimenopausal, which could be a 15-year, hopefully not, but sometimes <laughs> it's a very long transition and you're early perimenopausal, then you're late perimenopausal, then you haven't had the menstrual cycle for, it, for 11 months and you're still perimenopausal, then you're early postmenopausal, then you're late postmenopausal. What happens across the spectrum? And what we're seeing is that all these declines that we were seeing during the transition from pre-menopause to early post-menopause, actually plateau for most women, not all of them, but for most women, there's some kind of stabilization where there's no further change. And in some cases, some brain regions actually grow back a little bit, which I found fascinating. And in this kind of rebound correlated with improvement in global cognition and memory which is what clinical studies see, that yes, your cognition takes a dip as you go through perimenopause and you can't sleep at night and you have all these problems. You can, not all women have it, but then cognition comes back up. And again, you're still within normal limits. And the brain kind of reflects that, I think. It's not you know, a one-to-one correlation, but there is evidence that like blood flow to the brain we've shown is preserved during the transition to menopause. ATP production, where ATP is the energy currency of cells, is also broadly preserved during postmenopause. So these are things that are very important, I think, to acknowledge that there isn't one menopause. There are many different kinds. And I think we can better understand that when we look at pregnancy and puberty, as I call them the three Ps, <laughs> puberty, pregnancy, and perimenopause. because. We think of aging as something linear. Brain aging is a linear process because the vast majority of studies were done with men, right? And that's the way a man's brain tends to age, in part because of testosterone changes that are so linear and gradual over time. But for women's brains, it's much more of a <laughs> step ladder type thing where you know, your brain changes a lot during puberty and then changes a lot again during pregnancy. It changes a little bit with every menstrual cycle and then changes again with perimenopause. And these three neuroendocrine transition states are actually very similar. Mm-hmm. So puberty and pregnancy don't scare us because we see them as positive. And menopause is quite similar, but we're all freaked out by it because of culture, because we associate menopause with aging and getting older and, and getting wrinkles and whatnot. But yeah, you- I'm, I feel like we need to entirely rebrand menopause because the <laughs> yeah. thing is that we're in puberty for a few years. We're in our reproductive years, or I like the fertile years because not everyone wants to reproduce, but we're in those fertile right. years for 30, 35 years. But we could be menopausal in that transition, not even including the menopausal transition. I'm just talking about menopause. So not even perimenopause. We can be in menopause for 30, 40, 50 years, depending on our lifespan. And so we get to 50, 51, 52 with the average international age of menopause. And we're kind of culturally taught that we're past our peak. Yes. And we're in this decline and we're deficient when we need to just, I believe, entirely rethink this. And I love that your work is really helping us to do that. I hope that it does. I I really, I'm concerned that our findings could be used against women, you know, because your brain I do is understand that. Yes. scared. So I've been really trying to explain these changes as not being so different from pregnancy 
and puberty. So something people don't realize about puberty and pregnancy is that your brain shrinks with puberty and with pregnancy. There's actual great matter loss. Or and yet we also have all these superpowers that are, yeah. for example, like increased connectivity and ability to read others. There's so many superpowers that we have that really aren't altered during that time. In fact, are often enhanced. Get enhanced, like empathy is a big one. Mm-hmm. Pregnancy and menopause. Have it, it kind of reflects on what we value as a culture in some ways. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you know, with pregnancy, you better have empathy because you have a little <laughs> baby who can't speak. You really need to. I'm thinking more theory of mind, like, uh, mentalizing or being able to read other people's feelings and emotions or the ability to put yourself into another person's shoes. Which our teenage children definitely do not do for us. They do for the world, but not for their parents usually. For their friends, but yes. Yes, exactly. Parents. study that you've been spearheading, and I know that you're excited about, suggests that those of us who have greater cumulative exposure to estrogen in life, for yes. example, if we've had more children, we've taken- Up to five, no more than that. Okay, good to know. <laughs> yes, and it's not a prescription to have more children or to take hormone therapy. And I know this is still just an observational trial. Yes. So the study that we did just recently was again- aim the better understanding menopause and why the experience of menopause is so different for different women. Uh, there are some women who don't even feel the transition. Like they realize that their period isn't there anymore. Maybe they have some discomfort, but they're fine. At the end, they're fine. They have no brain fog. They just, my, like my mom, she couldn't sleep for a bit, but then she was like, oh, whatever. I'll just go for a walk and do a headstand. She's a yoga uh, person and the vegetarian. So, and interestingly, um, I've also heard heard read anthropologically that there are actually cultural differences in how we anticipate the menopause yes. or how we perceive it based on what our cultural values around aging women are and the likelihood of experiencing more severe symptoms in Asia or in in other cultures as well. Uh, menopause is just seen as one phase of life. Naturally, some women there look forward to it and they really feel empowered because their social status also changes with menopause. They have more freedom. They can do things that they couldn't do prior. And there's really this culture of menopause is just another part of your life where some things have changed, some things for the best, some things maybe not, but you just get on with it. And women don't experience the same symptoms that American women experience. And, you know, who knows what happens first, right? Is it that genetically you don't get as many symptoms and therefore you have a better attitude, right? Yes. And you're eating a diet that may, like your your mom being a vegetarian, so more plant-based and having more phytoestrogens. Yes. Like your your physical activity perhaps Mm -hmm. is better. Maybe you have less stress in your life or maybe your reaction to stress is different. So we don't know exactly all the different things that can influence the experience of menopause and the outcomes. But what we had done was to look at different reproductive, they're called reproductive events that could also impact how the brain changes with time. So one thing that 
a lot of people have been looking into is um, the time of puberty. Because if you go through puberty a little bit earlier, not crazy early, but like a year earlier than the average person, you may have estrogen for longer, for a year longer than a person who develops a year after you, right? And the same thing for age and menopause. So we do know that the earlier you go through menopause, the more severe the effects on risk of Alzheimer's disease and depression and stuff like that, especially for women who have their ovaries removed mm-hmm. before menopause. So oophorectomy, having an oophorectomy uh, increases, is associated, very big difference, is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease if the procedure occurs before age 48 or before the natural age of menopause. So we looked at all these different factors. We looked at the history of um, use of hormonal contraceptives, which is something that can impact um, your overall hormonal status. We looked at the age of menopause, age of puberty. We looked at whether or not women um, have been taking hormonal replacement therapy, what type of hormonal therapy. And so if you put all these factors together and you use you, statistical procedures to kind of rank them and, and find out what's really impactful and what's not as impactful, accounting for everything else, including number of children, number of pregnancy, age, the firstborn, then it really, it really looks like reproductive spin has an impact on the way that the brain changes during menopause. And the longer your reproductive spin, the more protected your brain seems to be. So you have more gray matter, basically, for every additional year of fertility. That, that you have, your brain has a little bit more gray matter as compared to women who whose reproductive span is shorter, especially. So clearly just trying to have more babies or just jumping on the pill or, you know, estrogen containing pill or just no, jumping no, no, no. on hormone replacement isn't the answer. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we do everything we, su- we can to naturally support a lengthier, healthy reproductive span or fertile years span. But for women who are struggling with more severe menopausal symptoms, which could suggest already lower levels of estrogen or women who, for whatever reason, don't have that ongoing protective bath of estrogen in their brain and bodies. What do you recommend? What do you find to be good protective steps? And how does hormone replacement therapy play into that? Because clearly it hasn't been shown to prevent Mm -hmm. dementia per se, to my understanding, but it may certainly be protective. Right. So yes, this is what kept me up last night because <laughs> I was part of a documentary. It's a lovely documentary that just came out in the UK where the headline, however, was that HRT can, can that, that's my headache, the word can prevent Alzheimer's disease. In Versus May. Yeah, or you know, HRT needs to be better evaluated, or there's there's hope yeah. that HRT might prevent Alzheimer's may help prevent Alzheimer's disease. That was a very definitive HRT can prevent Alzheimer's, and you have to start early, which is like way a minute, right? So there is, I think my my official position is that there is enough evidence to justify 
further investigation of HRT for Alzheimer's prevention. That's what we can realistically and accurately say because we do have many observational studies showing that women who do take hormones for menopause, especially when they're symptomatic and either in perimenopause or early postmenopause, that is associated with a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease later on in life as compared to women who do not take hormones. However, when you look at clinical trials, right, there's always this situation where you want to have both. You want to have observational evidence that something is good for you in a huge population. And then you want to take that thing and put it into a clinical trial and you want to find the same thing. And clinical trials of HRT do not, at this point, show a particularly strong protective effect. Now, the pushback on that is that it's very, very hard to do a clinical trial of Alzheimer's prevention because especially with, with HRD, you should start with women in their 40s and 50s. And it's going to take 30 years for anyone to develop Alzheimer's disease. So then, then we can conclude that one thing is leading to another. So in the absence of data, I take a very cautionary stance. Like I, I want more evidence. I agree. I find, well, I find the data around hormone replacement therapy in general very, there's so much competing information. Yeah. So yes, it protects this, but it increases the risk of that. Yes, it can be protective, but your increase, you know, if you take it for 10 years prior to and stay on a limited number of years, but not past age 60, but then you have other risks. So there's so much competing data. So at this point, I prescribe it when patients are really struggling, mm -hmm. when they're either unable to get relief with more natural therapies or lifestyle therapies, or they just don't have the bandwidth to try them because they're exhausted and overwhelmed. And yeah. then very specifically, I always go for indications. I don't just, you know, put somebody on hormone therapy for hair loss. There's no indication <laughs> for that. But if they're having severe vasomotor symptoms, a lot of hot flashes, they're not sleeping, they're having vaginal dryness or recurrent urinary symptoms, all those things that are really well studied and approved, yeah. then I'll always go for the form that provides the most safe dose with the least likelihood of side effects. So if I can use yeah. a vaginal estrogen, I will. If they need a topical, I'll go to a patch next, an oral next. And then of course, paying attention, does she have a uterus? Does she not have a uterus? Right. How long is she on it for? All the things. So um, I'm, I don't consider it a panacea. I do actually consider bioidentical hormones to carry all the same risks as any other hormones. Yeah. Uh, other, they're nice because you can tailor the dose specifically. But I, I feel that you know so much of the women's health trials that were stopped in the early 2000s um, led to so much panic and maybe the panic mm -hmm needs to be tempered a little bit as we do look at the yeah. very real benefits, especially for women whose quality of life is so compromised. Absolutely. And at the same time, we have to still keep those risks in mind. And, you know, back to what you were saying about, um, you know, this bikini problem, basically bikini science, it is addressing what my friend calls pits and bits, but, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there is so much more that we need to understand cardiovascular yeah. health and estrogen, yeah. brain health and estrogen, bone health and estrogen. So it's also, I mean, going back to your point, I think that addressing hot flashes mm -hmm. or sleep issues or mood issues is not the same as preventing dementia. 
that that is the problem I have, right? So I I agree that HRT is very helpful, and the North American Menopause Society is on the same page, and they're yep. very very concerned. And I use their guidelines very specifically. Exactly. I just exactly. stick with the NAMS guidelines. Yeah, which are, however, quite conservative, right? So before yes. an official society changes a guideline, you, you really have to pray in 10 different languages. However, you can be sure that that recommendation is effective and safe. So mm-hmm. hot flashes, yes. Sleep issues, yes, in some women. Brain fog, yes, in some women. Cognition support, Yes, in some women with oophorectomies or hysterectomies before menopause. Alzheimer's prevention is quite a different thing. I've been working in in the field of Alzheimer's prevention forever, and it is really hard (laughs) to to find good proof that certain things can prevent Alzheimer's disease. Well, Lisa, I'd love to shift gears on that note to talk about what we can do and when we should start to protect our brains. yeah, I just want to say that I don't I don't want to be like <laughs> the downer. It maybe HRT works, you know, but we need to test it. We need to do clinical trials starting at the right time with the right population, women who are symptomatic, where their brain is still in transition, so that there's a window of opportunity to actually intervene and then look at biomarkers of Alzheimer's prevention. And I, the reason I mention it is not to stay on this topic, but because we just started a clinical trial and I'm super excited then the HRT formulation that we're using is actually safe against breast cancer because everybody's worried about breast cancer is the number one concern for all women with HRT, right? So we have this formulation that is actually a derivative of plants. It's plant-based, it's a phytoserm. So it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator, a serum that comes from plants and has been tested a number of times. It's actually engineered to leave your breasts alone and just act inside your brain. That's amazing. It's not commercially available yet though. It's just for your trial. It's just for our trial. That's going to be a potentially amazing breakthrough. Exactly. So this, I think, will make me feel a lot better recommending HRT for brain health as well because I don't put you at risk of something else. I think what you said is really important too, that you don't want to be a Debbie Downer. And I find this is very challenging. I find this challenge in my own work where I want to provide women with the understanding of the magnitude of the problems that we face, whether that's risks of PCOS, endometriosis, various types of reproductive cancers or dementia without scaring people. But the only way to to address the topic is by discussing it and then finding the prevention tools and educating our communities on those tools. But if we don't address the problem head on, we're kind of wanting to avoid the negativity. I mean, it's significant. Two thirds of women with, uh, with, with dementia, 50% of people with dementia being women um, or two to one, right? I mean, these are, these are startling statistics. And And one thing that we haven't talked about, um, which I'm sure you've seen in your own family, is the loss for the person who becomes the victim of dementia. It is the loss for the family, but it's also women who become the primary caregivers. And I, in my practice, I'm seeing so many women in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s who are in the sandwich caregiver role where they're now taking care of their mother or mother and father who have cognitive decline and they're taking care of their 
teenagers or young children. And it's a lot for caregivers also. So not to take a selfish approach to why we should be preventatively minded as women, but it it affects us in so many ways. And it can be tremendously burdensome and overwhelming, not to say that caring for our loved ones is a burden, but there's a huge amount of fatigue and burnout. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking and caregivers suffer. Mm-hmm. physically and emotionally there's a lot of research on that yeah so I, I really empathize with your situation of not wanting to be a Debbie Downer while you're also sharing the statistics and the statistics and the more statistics yeah, that I know. I'm talking about something positive like yeah what? so let's shift gears that's what I want to switch gears to so you grew up in a very intensely analytical data-driven environment oh you're yes. a neuroscientist <laughs> yes. right? you're an incredible neuroscientist you're very fact and data-driven yes as am I and yet both of us find ourselves talking to our communities about these interventions, foods, plant-based eating that have evidence, but certainly are still on the younger side of, of really strong data. I'm curious how you found yourself leaning into a more integrative uh, whole life. How did, you, how did it happen? It was really hard. I I think it's because of my own research. Like um actually in part I was moving to New York. So when <laughs> I moved to New York, I moved when I was quite young. I mean, by Italian standards, I was young, I was 23. And I had never had to take care of myself. And I, I literally fell in love with chocolate chip cookies. Oh, that's and I don't I wouldn't say that I I was eating unhealthily, but certainly different, differently than I, I was used to. Well, and for listeners who don't know this, you can get chocolate chip cookies delivered to your home at any hour of the day or night in New York City. I know that. Really? <laughs> yeah. But what I noticed is that by not being as physically active as I used to be in Italy, eating definitely not as healthily or a little bit well definitely not as healthily and I had a lot more stress and I couldn't think straight and I'm a really high performers performer like I, I can study and work for like 15 hours straight and just not even notice and I could not remember anything and that's really what convinced me to look into diet and exercise and intellectual well intellectual activity because people say it's really important for Alzheimer's prevention but also stress levels so we started doing that with the research and we started doing brain scans and measuring all these factors in our patient cohort, in people who were my age. So that was really interesting for me to work with people who were in their 30s and 40s and any age, but also younger. Because when you work in Alzheimer's disease, the vast majority of people start at age 60. But we were doing midlife and younger, which was very, very different and very new and I mean, I, I can see it on the brain scans. We've done a ton of studies, many are published, and there's a very clear difference between people who eat healthily and have a healthy lifestyle and people who do not. Like their brains are better. They're, they look younger. I just spoke to a friend of mine the other day. She, she's in my study. And I said to her, look, because I look at all the brain scans and I, I don't have access to clinical information when I do my first review so that there is no bias and everything is de-identified. Actually, you know exactly who I'm talking about because we met at her dinner party. Oh. <laughs> and I texted her when I found out it was her brain and they said, oh my God, 
your your brain is like 20 years younger than than I thought. I'm so glad I actually had dinner with her recently and she told me she was going to see you and that you were going to give her information. I think she was frightened because she has Alzheimer's in her family. So I'm so glad you were able to tell her that. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the things that you think, aside from the occasional chocolate chip cookie, we're talking about lots of chocolate chip cookies here, but what are the things that people, if you could just say, please don't do that anymore four or five things that you just feel are the biggest insults for brain health. Yeah, I was starting with exercise. So I think well, the, the number one behavioral modification that everybody agrees is preventative against Alzheimer's disease is exercise. So I would say then don't go the whole week without getting your heart rate up. How much movement, how much exercise, how much cardio, what do you recommend for optimal brain health? So what studies have shown is that moderate intensity exercise is sufficient to really be associated with a risk reduction in Alzheimer's disease um, when done consistently two or three times a week for about 40, 45 minutes per session. So if you can push yourself a little bit more that certainly is good, is a good thing, right? Because I think it's really cardiovascular fitness that correlates with um, a healthier brain because the human brain is incredibly sensitive to changes in blood flow or circulation. And that really reduces what goes down with age. So anything that you can do that makes your heart beat a little bit faster and improves oxygen levels to the brain and blood flow to the brain and nutritional support to the brain, which comes from the circulation is certainly a plus. When people say heart health is brain health and you know respiratory health is brain health. So just having a healthy body is a good predictor of a healthy brain. And I want to just clarify, when we're talking about Alzheimer's prevention, it's more than that, right? These things aren't just about preventing something. This is about having a healthy brain span yes. so that we're cognitively capable and able to yeah. live independently and sharp and enjoying our lives to the fullest also capacity. also there for the present as well, right? I'm used to talking about Alzheimer's prevention because that's what people want from me, but, but it's really also about the present. Mm-hmm. You want to have a sharp mind at any age, regardless of what happens in 30, 40 years from now. Like I, I want to, to have clear thoughts and I want mm-hmm. to remember things that I don't want to struggle and I don't want to have brain fog. And uh, I want to remember things, <laughs> especially when you have young kids. My daughter is now turning seven. And like you said, that's a full-time job to really be a good parent and go from working all day to really be present for your kids. It takes brain power and I need the brain power and I find it in my lifestyle for sure. So exercise is, is super important. And mm-hmm. in terms of the future, there is evidence from very big studies with very long follow-ups that for women, if you're physically active in midlife, and midlife is any age between 35 and 65, just to be clear, then you have a 30% lower risk of Alzheimer's disease later on in life as compared to women, midlife women who are sedentary, who do not exercise at all, right? So if you're very physically fit, 30% lower risk of Alzheimer's disease is huge. It's one and you can people. start anytime. It's not yeah, like you. Yeah. yeah. So if you follow this recommendation of moderate 
or higher if you like, physical activity three times a week, that gives you a huge, huge buffer against cognitive aging. And if you do less, that's still beneficial. It's still better than doing nothing. And I, I, I think that's a really comforting thought because, you know, some people hate running and every, or some people don't want to have to, to really sweat at the gym. <laughs> And there are so many other things that one can do. As well, and another benefit is it relieves depression or it helps prevent depression, which is also important for long-term cognitive function, which is my understanding. Yeah, absolutely. So midlife depression is actually a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, especially in women. So exercise boosts your endorphin, releases serotonin to your brain, which is the antidepressant hormone, and it has a, an overall strengthening effect. All right, let's talk about a couple of more things that women can do. And let's briefly touch on testing because I also don't want to overload you and I want to be respectful of your time because I, I know you are so busy and this is so precious. Well, diet first before mm -hmm. testing. You know, exercise is tricky because you really have to make time for it. Whereas with nutrition, we all, most people eat at least three times a day, mm -hmm. right? Maybe two, those who fast a lot, but we do eat consistently every single day. So we really have about three chances every day to make a smart choice that is supportive of brain health or not. And that's, that's a beautiful way to look at that. I mean, that is just so beautiful. Three chances a day to make a choice for brain health. Yes. And it's very simple. You want to stay away from processed foods as much as you can. And that already cuts your risk of dementia by quite a bit, depending on, you know, what different studies show. But we know that, for example, a Mediterranean style diet has really been associated with positive outcomes for brain health, especially for women. So women who follow that kind of diet, not literally you don't have to move to Italy or Spain but like that the style the diet style have a 25 percent lower risk of cardiovascular disease so heart disease and stroke they have a 50 percent lower risk of breast cancer they have a much lower risk of depression and the lower risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia and they have fewer heart functions and it's delicious like it's not a crazy diet that was developed by somebody who made day. it up <laughs> you know, I just made it up and said, this is the diet of the 22nd and the 21st century. No, this is a diet that's been around for a really, really long time. And we know that people who followed, I would say like the blue zone yeah. diet, right? Where the diet that the centenarians follow all across the world is fresh, is local, obviously, is seasonal, where there's the most nutrition in the foods that you're eating because you, they're ripe, they're, they're there at the right time of the year. Uh, it's full of antioxidants and antioxidants in my mind are the number one nutrient for brain health, especially as we get older. And then also omega-3 fatty acids are really important. And they're mostly plant-centric. Now there's confusion between plant-based, vegan, vegetarian, but plant-centric diets. So diets that really focus on fresh veg vegetables and fruit and legumes and whole grains and uh, vegetable oils instead of a lot of butter and animal products. Nuts and seeds. Nuts and seeds, for sure. So that that's the diet I would recommend. You don't have to be 
too strict, of course. There's an indulgence here and there, which is also a nice thing about the Mediterranean lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But mostly you're really eating foods that promote and support brain health because of the fiber, because of the antioxidants, because of all the phytonutrients, because of inflammatory compounds. A cup of coffee here and there. Mm -hmm. Which has been shown to have some really strong cognitive benefits Benefit. for women yeah. and espresso. older. Especially, mm. did you know espresso. that? Espresso has the highest antioxidant power of all beverages. Before we wrap, I would love to have you just talk a bit about testing. One, because I know that APOE4 testing is available through a lot of integrative and functional doctors and people go nuts about their risk once they see that. So what testing do you recommend if women are going to do any that is accessible through their primary care provider that may give some indications of maybe inflammatory markers, other things, or do you think it's helpful at all? We, we do. We believe in testing. We do a lot of tests. However, they're done in the context of memory support and Alzheimer's prevention practice. So we do the basic metabolic panel so insulin, glucose, uh, glucose levels. We do lipids, definitely you know, LDL, HDL, total cholesterol, triglycerides, but we also do omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids and the different breakdowns. We look at homocysteine, um, which is a non-specific risk factor for uh, cardiovascular mm -hmm. issues. We do CRP, C-reactive protein. We look at some inflammatory markers. We do hormones. We do thyroid panels. And we do APOE for testing. Do I believe that people should do APOE for testing? No, I don't think so. The recommendations are the same. They can be tweaked based on your genetics, but you need to have a provider who knows how to mm -hmm. do that. I you're agree not, with you. And people just get these mail order testing and they're just they're not terrified. Correct. They're not correct. However, in many, many cases, we have so many people who come to the clinic, to the Alzheimer's prevention clinic that I'm directing now uh, with APOE results from 23andMe or other TDC companies. And then we repeat them always using a CLIA certified lab, which is the gold standard. And there's at least a 30% mismatch. Wow. So we have a lot of people who think they're, they have the, what they call Alzheimer's gene, which is not correct anyway. And it turns out they do not. So I think there's a lot of genetic education that needs to happen whenever there's genetic counseling involved. And not everybody is trained to offer that kind of service. So I would say always genetic counseling, always work with a doctor who knows how to manage mm -hmm. whatever findings you, you come up with, right? Whatever findings you're given. And uh, yeah. I love the rest of the panel. It's the same I do in my practice. Yeah, I also add in a B12 or an MMA because sometimes someone has brain fog or what they think is cognitive dysfunction and really it's a thyroid problem or they're anemic or they have low B12 and it's really iron, repairable. Yes. The iron, yeah, we do those as well. Uh, especially when I was at NYU, I would also uh, do the nutritional panel, which mm -hmm. I thought was super cool, but you know, it's tricky because it's expensive. Yeah. So Lisa, you also have a... You're in charge of an Alzheimer's Prevention Research Center. And one of the <laughs> program now, I got all of them. Program, so beautiful. 
the Women's Brain Initiative, which is my research program. And now we have an Alzheimer's Prevention Clinical Trials Unit. Well, brava, it's incredible. <laughs> and I know that one of the things that you do is have women uh, come in who are interested in getting testing. So is this something you want to mention? And we can put the link in the show notes as to people who might be interested in participating in your study. It's free. They can get their imaging done. Um, yes. Is this something you'd like to share with the world? I would like to share with the world. We have a lot of projects. We have a lot of NIH funded projects as well as other uh, protocols that we're working on. And we do brain scans. So the, a test that I would personally recommend is a brain scan. And you're coming to get your brain scanned, right? I point. am coming. I know I need okay. to set up a date. I'm definitely coming. Good. So we do that. And I, I find it incredibly helpful because people don't realize that there are, there are a number of things that can happen to your brain that, need, that really need addressing. For some participants, we also do PET scans, which are the brain scans where you see brain energy levels. And we look at Alzheimer's plaques. And we do connectivity, we do blood flow, we do mitochondrial activity. These are done for research. So some results are not, we can't really disclose them because there's no reference range at the time, at the moment, one day we'll have them, right? But so the, the idea is to get a very good baseline so that you can see, you, you, know, you have an image of your brain today and if there's anything that needs to be addressed, we do it. And otherwise you're supporting research and we keep doing brain scans over time. That is really our goal. We'll put and the link to how to contact your team for those who are in the area or are coming to the area and are interested in seeing if they qualify and can schedule. So it's exciting, I think, to get to be part yeah. of that and support women's yeah. brain research, which needs to happen. Yeah. Okay, exactly. I have one last question for you and you may yeah. have answered it, but- you're, I, I hardly meet women who I want to say to them, how do they do it all? Because I always get asked that question. You're so busy. <laughs> You're so warm and kind and generous with your time. I want to know if there's anything aside from exercise that you personally do to stay nurtured, what most deeply feeds you that you non-negotiably make time for, if you do, for self-care? Isolation. That is more. Yeah, I'm an introvert and my time has been taken up by a gazillion people, which is understandable and wonderful, but I really need solitude to recharge. I am exactly the same. Thank you for all the work you're doing for all of us. You're not just doing this pioneering work at the forefront of changes, but I also know that you are a woman scientist and what has historically and continues to be a very male-dominated world that has its own challenges and stressors. You're showing us how the female brain works. You're reducing menopause stigma and you're providing tools that so many women can use to mitigate their risks of cognitive decline and live fully realized lives. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being you and what you bring to all of us and your beauty on every level. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining me today. I hope that this conversation has inspired you to rethink how you care for your brain every day, starting now. I hope that women, even in their 30s, are listening because cognitive decline isn't something that generally happens overnight. As Dr. Moscone shares in the XX Brain, we can start taking care of our brain health at any time, and it's never too late. But of course, the earlier, the better. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.